0: Well, good morning, St. George's. Great to be with you on another Lord's Day. Let us just bow our heads in prayer here as we start. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning, another day to celebrate what you've done in our lives through the gospel. We thank you for what you're doing even here right now. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts here present would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, would you guide us by your wisdom? And by your Holy Spirit, we commit ourselves and we commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My friends, if you could get your Bibles back out to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. At 2 Corinthians 6, we're going to be looking through verses 1 to 13 this morning. I just wanted to start off today, as you do so, by recalling a little bit of what we looked at last week. My friends, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Anyone saved in Jesus Christ, born again, possessing a lively faith that bears fruit, is a new creation. And to have this new life in Jesus Christ is, in fact, to be part of God's new creation. My friends, the restoration of Eden has dawned through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the regeneration of his elect. So in Christ, the believer then has this new heart and thus new desires and a new direction in life. And this happens through the gospel, which is the message of reconciliation. Let's look at verse 21 of chapter 5 as we recall. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So think of it, friends, Christ, the heavenly king, possessing innumerable riches, takes our unpayable debt, and we, the poor beggars, receive his bottomless fortune, right? Christ's flawless record is counted to us solely through the empty hands of faith. He covers our debt and more. He gives us life. Now let's look at chapter 6, verse 1. Verse 1 says, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So in verse 1, we see that God is at work in Paul's ministry in the immediate context, and God is at work in the church's ministry throughout time. So we learn from in chapter 5, verse 18 to 20, that God has entrusted to Paul and to the church this message. Of reconciliation, right? The word of reconciliation, the gospel, in fact, the only word that reconciles, Jesus Christ, the only way through whom man is reconciled to God, as we see that in chapter 5, verse 18 to 20, that there would be no more separation between God and man because of our sin, but reconciliation, that there would be restored relationship with God in Jesus Christ. So we see that Paul and the church are ambassadors for Christ. God giving the church this ministry of reconciliation, that we would preach the gospel as God is working within his church, as we see in chapter 6, verse 1, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That the church, my friends, would ultimately go forward, equipped for ministry by the Holy Spirit, who was poured out, on Pentecost, that the gospel would be preached and that many would be saved and made new in Jesus Christ. At verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So Paul is clear here that one must not receive the grace of God in vain. Remember the context. Paul is preaching the gospel to the Corinthians, right? This message of reconciliation. And he says, do not receive this grace in vain. In the Greek, the word vain carries with it this idea of emptiness, right? Empty or empty-handed, maybe fruitless, ineffective, or useless. And we know that Paul's ministry is communicating this grace of God to others through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, to receive the grace of God in vain, may point to becoming a believer and then failing to steward that gift and grace. In the immediate sense, the Corinthians allowing their church to be swept away by false apostles or their lives glorifying God less and less, refusing to pursue lives marked by purity. But on the other hand, to to receive the grace of God in vain, this may point to hearing the gospel message, right? this message of reconciliation, And even seeming to profess faith. But yet there's no life change. There's no new life. This would be a fruitless faith, which is not saving faith. Because we know, friends, that saving faith, true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is a living faith. It's a lively faith. It's not dead. Because saving faith is plugged into the life source. The risen Savior. He gives us new life. contrast this idea of of receiving the grace of God in vain with the true believer. Well, the true believer, my friends, will strive to obey Christ, right? Their new hearts will want to obey Christ's commands. And although they won't be perfect in their earthly walk, the true believer will bear more and more fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their lives as the believer pursues Christ's more and more. So true faith, then, my friends, bears fruit in works. That works are the fruit of our saving faith, the fruit of our justification. And we know from James 2 that faith without works is dead. So back to this idea of receiving the grace of God in vain at verse 1. Those who claim to have faith and yet do not bear fruit ultimately have received the grace of God in vain. They do not possess saving faith. It's an empty profession. And those, my friends, who finally turn back from Christ show that their initial apparent reception of God's grace was not true, but in the deepest sense, in vain. So hear what Paul is saying to us even now. Let us make sure, church, that we do not receive the gospel in vain. This message of reconciliation, let it take root in your souls and at the core of your new self in Christ. Let it change your life. Let's look at verse 2 now. Paul says, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of of salvation. So here in verse 2 Paul is quoting from the prophet Isaiah from chapter 49 verse 8 and Paul is assuring the Corinthians here of God's desire to save and to help his people and for us as well my friends we can see that our God is a God who listens, helps, and saves. We see that in verse 2. So Isaiah 49, the immediate context, is related to this Old Testament understanding of the end-time restoration of Israel and the ingathering of the nations, that day of redemption and day of judgment. And in Christ, my friends, what Paul is saying here in verse 2 is that this end-time restoration is now present in Jesus Christ through the message of reconciliation So Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. How? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? This message of reconciliation. My friends, feel the urgency here that God is calling his people to himself right now. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This new creation has dawned through the resurrection of Jesus and so here's the question then that we ask ourselves this morning are we saved in Jesus Christ are we in Christ are we a new creation in Christ now is the day of salvation and this good news my friends of Jesus Christ is for you right now now is the day of salvation. Some might say, well, I'm not ready or I don't know enough. No, now is the day of salvation. Believe in him and you'll be saved. So this time of salvation has arrived now in Jesus Christ. My friends, we must see our sin for what it is, our sin that deserves judgment, justice, death and hell. But now we see the Savior who paid the full price for our sin, the penalty As he bore the wrath of God in our place. And now let us see his perfect record counted to us by faith. That we would be declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. Reconciled to God through the message of reconciliation. The word of reconciliation. And that by faith we are clothed in Christ's white robes. Our sin covered that we would believe in Jesus and have eternal life. And if we believe in him, we will live forever. Eternal life with Christ because of what he's done for us. If we truly confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Now is the day of salvation. So in verse 2, Paul identifies his ministry with Isaiah's prophetic role, right? All of the promises of the Old Testament prophets coming to fruition in Christ and the fulfillment of God's redemptive promise for his people now on display through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. So Paul is continuing his defense of his ministry, this ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation being this right fellowship and restored relationship with God again. No more separation. And so Paul openly speaks the truth here in verse 3. He does not put in any stumbling blocks in the way of his hearers. As we've said before, St. Paul's life and ministry is grounded on the word of God, the word of reconciliation. Christian man or woman, let let us also have our words and actions be consistent with our identity in Christ. Let us refrain from putting any obstacles in the way of our gospel message as we share it with others. That like Paul, let us openly speak the truth. Let us not shy away. My friends, even when secular culture puts pressure on us, let us speak the truth openly as God's servants, preaching the word of God and calling people to Christ. Now is the day of salvation, that we would live under the lordship of Jesus Christ and we'd share this word of reconciliation with others. Now let's look at verse 4 and 5. Paul starts to shift gears here a little bit. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. So as a servant of God, it is not only through victories and triumphs, but also by the way that Paul endures hardships that give testimony to the truthfulness of his ministry and the truthfulness of his Christian life. Let us see that and apply that to our lives as well. Paul follows Jesus. He takes up his cross and follows the Savior. To let the Christian also follow the Savior in life's sufferings, my friends. That the glory of the gospel would shine forth from our lives in the way that we respond to suffering and opposition. So Paul and the true believer go through life's temporal suffering, right? These light momentary afflictions. And yet the believer keeps his eternal perspective through it all. Through all of life's suffering. Not losing focus on the unseen, Which we've heard Paul speak about before in this letter. The eternal weight of glory. No longer focusing on the flesh, but on the spirit. Setting our minds on the spirit. My friends, the new creation has dawned. And so while outwardly, there will be worldly suffering. We will go through things in this life. But the believer suffers well. They do not lose heart ever because Jesus has rose from the grave, and eternity awaits them. Nothing in this world can take away their joy in Christ. So the believer has great endurance in verse 4, through all affliction, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the believer living this new life in the gospel age, this life that is patterned after the Savior of the world, a life that looks like the cross and the resurrection. So even in our weakness, my friends, we endure because the strength of Jesus Christ, our Savior, as at work, is at work in us and sustains us. Let's look at verse six and seven. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and genuine love, by truthful speech. And the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Right, my friends, that even through affliction and suffering, the Christian is known by pure conduct, knowledge in spiritual things, patience, this gentle kindness, a life that radiates the truth of the Holy Spirit, clearly being sustained by the third person of the Trinity, That the believer's life is characterized, my friends, by this Christ-like sacrificial love. In the Greek, the word agape, this type of love, this highest form of love, genuine godly love, this love that cares for the soul of another, the love of God taking root in our new hearts and directing our steps. So like Paul, the believer also speaks the truth in all things, going forth by the power of God, as we see in verse 7, that we'd be armed with the weapons of righteousness, the full weaponry of God's spirit to be used against demonic or human opposition. Think of this, friends, at verse 7, by truthful speech and the power of God. The power of the Almighty God goes with you. Pause on that for a second. Almighty God goes with you and by the Holy Spirit lives within you. The power behind the universe itself is in you. Remember that. That the believer is well equipped for battle against the forces of darkness. Because the believer is grounded on God's word. Like Paul the sword of the Spirit, as we see in Ephesians 6. My friends, we know that Satan is clearly at work in this world, but let us go forth with the power of God to battle. Let us kill the sin in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would put sin to death and strive for holiness in this life, battling the world, the flesh. And the devil by the word of God. And remember, friends, that Satan doesn't stand a chance against Christ the king and his church. So let us battle Satan, knowing that he has already lost. His fate is sealed. The lake of fire awaits him. So at verse 6 and 7, let us ask ourselves these questions. How are we doing with these characteristics of the Christian life that Paul mentions in verse 6 and 7? Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness. Does our life show the truth of the Holy Spirit who resides within us? Do we have genuine love, care for the soul of another, sacrificial love, truthful speech, How are we doing with these characteristics? Where do we need to repent? Where do we need to turn and look to the Savior? So let us pray for and strive for these godly virtues in our lives that we see in verse 6 and 7 as an example of Paul's Christian life and that shows the validity of his ministry. I really loved this quote from Jonathan Edwards uh, pertaining to the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. He says this, the strength of the good soldier of Jesus Christ appears in nothing more than in steadfastly maintaining the holy calm, meekness, sweetness, and benevolence of his mind amidst all the storms, injuries, strange behavior, and surprising acts and events of this evil and unreasonable world. Remember, my friends, the power of God goes with us And we are armed by his spirit. Let's look at verse 8 and 9 now. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying. And behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, So, in verses eight and nine, we see this series of paradoxes that clearly highlight the contrast between the viewpoint of the world, right? What is visible, what is seen, that temporal perspective, and contrasting that with the eternal lens, the eternal perspective, right? What is unseen. And Paul has been making these sort of contrasting realities known through the last few chapters, right? That light momentary affliction versus the eternal weight of glory, the outer self versus the inner self, the old that has passed away, behold the new that has come. And so the Christian, my friends, is called to live from this vantage point of eternity, right? Living from the standpoint that is invisible to the natural eye, but seen by the eye of faith in Christ. By the world, my friends, we Christians will be outwardly dishonored, and we see in verse 8, or slandered, treated as imposters when regarded according to the flesh. But our, our lives will not look like the lives of worldly people as Christians. We may even be punished for our faith, even leading to death like Paul and many martyrs. And yet, my friends, we live. In Christ we live because our life and salvation is rooted in the resurrection, the risen Savior, nothing can ultimately shake us because we're united to Jesus Christ by faith. We will live forever. Not even temporal death can take away our eternal joy in Jesus Christ. Feel that today, that we may be outcasts in this world, But that's because this world is not our home. We're citizens of heaven. Let us always keep our sights set on heavenly things. Even as we live joyfully here and now. That our earthly lives would be devoted to Jesus Christ and his ministry of reconciliation. And at the end of the day, my friends, we can take great comfort in the fact that We are truly known and loved by our Heavenly Father. He sees us rightly, even if no one else does. In this we are content. In this truth we live. Remember that. Let's look at verse 10. Paul says, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich as having nothing, yet possessing everything. As we know, the new creation has dawned. So let us always cherish this gift of new life that we possess in Jesus Christ. Death, yet life. Rejection, yet triumph. Suffering, yet endurance in Christ. Think of how Jesus speaks to Martha in John 11. He says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this today? The reality of the gospel in Jesus Christ, eternal life through Jesus Christ, The resurrection life is at work in the life of a believer. Not living life in the lows of our temporal afflictions, my friends, but instead the believer lives life in the highs of the heavenly mountains, seated with Jesus Christ, always striving to remember the eternal weight of glory, to remember the gospel, living life from the standpoint of eternity, that eternal perspective. And this is a reason for heavenly rejoicing amidst temporal sorrow. At verse 10, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything in Jesus Christ. Remembering our eternal inheritance. The heavenly promised land. The heavenly riches in Jesus Christ amidst earthly poverty that even though we Christians may have nothing compared to when compared to earthly standards. Since the believer knows Jesus, he possesses everything. Since the believer is united to the Savior by faith, he possesses everything. The believer possesses everything because Christ is his King, the eternal King of all creation. For from him and through him, And to him are all things. Innumerable heavenly riches given to the believer. The salvation of their souls. By grace, the believer has been saved through faith. Salvation in Jesus Christ. A gift of God, not a result of works. The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. My friends... In ourselves, we possess nothing. And yet through the gospel, through the message of reconciliation, we truly possess everything in Christ. What else do you need? If you have Jesus, you have everything. What your heart has always longed for, you now possess in Christ Jesus. This is a reason to never stop rejoicing even amidst temporal sorrow and suffering and persecution. Remember the Savior. Remember the gospel. Nothing in this world will ultimately satisfy the desires of your heart, but he will, and he now lives in you by his Spirit. Remember that. And let's look at verse 11 to 13. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. My friends, we do not know what will be tomorrow, but behold, now is the day of salvation. Hear this message right now. The gospel. Repent. Turn from your old ways. Look to the Savior. Walk towards him. A new direction. Living life Christward. Ask for forgiveness. Do not receive this good news in vain. Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not let your worldly affections get in the way. At verse 12. But widen your hearts. That Jesus died for you. Widen your hearts, my friends. Behold the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let it take root in your lives and change you from the inside out. Believe in him and you will live forever. Hear that today. Believe in him and you will truly possess everything in him. The riches of Jesus Christ. The eternal inheritance. What what an amazing reality we have. This true purpose true joy, forgiveness of all our sins, eternal life, widen your hearts, believe in him, live new life in him, and find your identity in him. He knows you. He loves you. God made you. New life. Feel the deep positive aspects of being a child of the king. Rejoice, my friends. It's the day of salvation the gospel of Jesus Christ for you right now. We are children of the King. Let us smile and rejoice because Jesus, our Savior, lives. Always rejoicing, even in earthly sorrow, that we would always rejoice. Widen your hearts. Live a life overflowing with this inexpressible heavenly joy as we possess everything in Jesus Christ. Now is the day of salvation, my friends. Praise the King, for he has made us new. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reality of the gospel, the message of reconciliation. Lord, I pray that we do not receive this gospel in vain, this grace of God the message of our salvation, Lord. We thank you for the riches that we have in Jesus Christ, eternal life, that we possess everything, that no earthly sorrow or suffering can get in the way of our heavenly joy. Let us always remember the gospel. I pray that you're moving in this place, Lord, moving in our hearts, Lord, as you're saving your people, and bringing them to eternal life. We commit ourselves to you now. Let us live in the joy of the resurrection. In your name we pray. Amen.